Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Ron Gross, sitting in for Chris Hill. Joining me today are senior analysts Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Gentlemen, how you doing? <laughs> hey, hey, Ron. Great to see you both. Earnings season rolling along. Today, we're going to talk about some of my favorite things, streaming TV, burritos, and beer. But we must begin with taxes. On Thursday, the Biden administration proposed a plan to increase the capital gains tax rate on those earning more than $1 million to 39.6%. Proceeds will be used to help pay for Biden's American Family Plan, which includes spending and tax credits to fight poverty and help American families. Now, Jason, this is a business show, so let's keep politics out of it. But I want to know what you think the impact will be on wealthy investors and on the stock market as a whole. Yeah, I mean, this this is bold language, and there is definitely a political discussion to be had, which is, of course, what we don't do here, so we won't. I appreciate that, Ron. Uh, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, though, I think while this makes for a wonderful investing headline, uh, it sure lights the, it lights the fuse on Twitter for a lot of folks. I, it's really not terribly meaningful in the context of most retail investors. Um, you, you went through a lot of the mechanics there in regard to the proposition. Uh, there's some interesting data out there. This fact set chart making the rounds out there earlier, showing that really there's a lack of correlation between changes in the capital gains rates and market returns. And for example, you go back to 2013, capital gains rates went up somewhat meaningfully, and yet the market still had a great year, returning better than 30. percent And so I think that with something like this, I mean, yes, we could see some short-term volatility with some selling now to reinvest. That cash, that capital elsewhere, that that may be less exposed to, to certain tax obligations, um, but but generally, I mean, we we kind of fall in that Buffett camp, right? I mean, that, that quote that Buffett, Warren Buffett, uh, has offered up before, where he says, "I've worked with investors for sixty years, and I have yet to see anyone, not even when capital gains rates were thirty nine point nine percent in nineteen seventy six uh, to nineteen seventy seven, shy away from a sensible investment because of a." Of the tax rate on the potential gain, and I think that's the right way to look at it. You know, I mean, we've got a system here where you've got short-term capital gains taxes, which come into play for holdings of a year or less. You've got long-term capital gains taxes, which come into play for investments you hold for more than one year. Honestly, what I would love to see happen, and I know a lot of people would agree here, I'd love to see a super long-term gains rate where if you own the company for five years or more, your tax rate is zero. Uh, to me, that would but that would certainly encourage those longer term holding uh, periods that that would uh, maybe counter a lot of that day to day trading. But uh, again, I mean, this is not something that was a surprise by any means. We we figured that this administration would be aiming to 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 do this in some capacity. So it, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Andy, do you do you agree? Does this change any behaviors among the wealthiest investors? Well, yeah, it might it might change some behaviors in the short term. I think Jason hit all the all the key points. We might see some, you know, it's it's been a it's been a heck of a ride for the past, you know, eighteen months for so many investors. The, you know, the the one percent of the of the households out there in wealth, they they control thirty to fifty percent of 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 assets in the in the equity markets these days. So, um, but you also have a lot of foreign investors who own U.S. assets, so they may not be impacted by the taxes. So there's a lot of put and takes here. Overall, I think it's gonna. It 
if it impacts at all, it'll impact over the short term and all Jason's points over the long term are what really, really matters. I think more interesting and perhaps more impactful what, what happens at the corporate tax rate levels and how that changes and how that in, might increase and what that impacts to the, to the cash flows and the profits for the companies that we follow. That will likely be more impactful than, than the consumer tax rates over, over the long term. On Tuesday, Netflix reported first-quarter results that left some investors concerned about subscriber growth, and the stock sold off as a result. And Andy, is this simply the COVID bounce starting to subside, or is there something more going on here? I think a lot of that, Ron. I think it is a little bit of the COVID bounce starting to subside. And they even mentioned this as much and talked about this pretty extensively, um, that they saw this pull, through, pull forward over the last year as uh, the COVID uh, lockdown, the quarantines, and our desire for for entertainment really helped to juice those subscriber numbers um, earlier in 2020. So, their global paid streaming subscribers were up 13.6%, or about 4 million. Now, they reach almost 208 million people around the globe. Um, but the management guidance was more for like 6 million. So, they think they saw this pull forward over the last year, um, which is not too surprising. I think we there's probably, you know, we, that, that the 2000 growth 20 growth levels can't sustain forever. So, um, so a little bit of that pull forward. They also talked about the impact of the 2020 COVID um, quarantines and affecting the production and increasing production delays. So they didn't have as many slate of new releases coming out in the, in the first half of this year. That will change in the second half of the year. So they expect that to kind of impact a rebounding in the second half of the year. So, so, um, so over the year, we expect that to start to subside a little bit. Um, revenue is still up 24%. Very impressive. That's an acceleration from what we saw last quarter. So, so we start to see some of the price increases start to start to go through. Revenue per subscriber was up a little bit. Their churn levels were actually a little were more manageable and actually a little bit lower than what they saw last year. So, so overall, the subscriber additions was a little bit weak, but the rest of the business, the profit picture, the revenue structure, the, the, the churn levels are all still very strong for Netflix. Disney Plus crossing 100 million subscribers. You think anybody over at Netflix is concerned? Well, it's interesting, Ron. They mentioned <laughs> they they broke out specifically in their very detailed shareholder letter. They publish a whole section on competition. They said they did not really see an impact there because they have seen across the globe where the competition levels all differ. They've seen similar um, subscriber growth numbers throughout the over across the globe, globe pretty much. So they don't really see competition as a driving in impact. I can guarantee you, well, I guess I can't guarantee because I'm not there, <laughs> but I think they are paying attention to what's happening over there, but but they are continuing to invest. They are going to spend $17 billion on content this year. Um, they are balanced, have a balance sheet that is um, levered for that content, and they are really ramping up the slate with things like Red Notice with Gal Gadot and Don't Look Up um, production with an all-star cast of like Leo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and a whole bunch of others coming out later this year. So, this, the, the, the second half of the year should be more positive for Netflix than the first half. Intuitive Surgical reported strong first quarter results on Tuesday as the pandemic began to ease and elective surgeries started to ramp back up. And Jason, is Intuitive Surgical back in growth mode? Well, I, I think, at least to a degree, you said it. I mean, the, the, the little bit of a bounce back from COVID as demand starts to recover and surgeries resume. Um, intuitive Surgical, to me, this is really an, it's an excellent example of the power of a strong razor and blade model, why we as investors like it so much. You install great equipment and you do everything 
in your power than to keep your customers locked in. And Intuitive really is doing just that. The stock's over, up over 70% over the last year, which clearly has been a challenging year. Um, as far as the numbers, revenue for the quarter, up 18% from a year ago. Non-GAAP earnings per share up 31% from a year ago. Procedures up 16%. System placements grew 26%, and they actually expanded their installed base of DaVinci systems by 8%. Uh, it's interesting to know. I think the one thing to keep an eye on with with Intuitive Surgical here going forward for the rest of the year and even into 2022, they the instrument and accessory revenue. What they're ultimately doing is they're building out this extended use instrument. Uh, aspect of the business. They're basically giving their instruments and accessories more life than they used to have. So it results in fewer sales of those instruments and those accessories. But ultimately, down the line, what they believe they'll witness is a little bit more pricing power as time goes on in not only keeping those customers locked in, but keeping them locked in with higher quality instruments, accessories, technology. It gives them the ability to, to launch new systems as well. They're starting to gain some traction. With the new ion lung biopsy system, so all things considered, I mean, this is a company that managed the pandemic very well. Tremendous competitive position, and in clearly, what is a market that is that is starting to gain traction really globally with a lot of businesses out there as robotic surgery becomes more and more a viable option. And we just added Intuitive Surgical to our April Fools portfolio, which you can find at www.fool.com/free. Which is not a joke. We stand behind those companies in the stand portfolio. Behind the company, and we're investing fifty grand behind them. On Thursday, Market Access reported a strong first quarter that slightly missed expectations. And Andy, on Friday morning, the stock wasn't reacting too much to the results. What stood out to you in the report? Yeah, not not too surprising what we're seeing here, um, uh, Ron. Revenues are up 16%. That's a record. Operating profits up 14%. Trading volumes were up 14%. They continue. This is an electronic trading platform for institutional investors trading fixed income. They continue to drive their market share leadership there. Record high. High yield emerging market euro bonds, um, high grade U.S. market share was up a little bit from from a year ago. Um, so continued good news from from market from market access. It's very profitable. They drive lots of free cash flow, make little acquisitions. Their expenses were up a little bit higher. Depreciation and amortization was up the most. That was a lot from some of the acquisitions they've made recently. But the big push is the open trading, which is the the complete trading process on their platform. From finding pricing, finding buyers, and making the trade continues to to really grow, and now is a third of their trading volumes. That's a really exciting initiative for Market Access, and as a shareholder, I'm excited to see them continuing to build out that business. Coming up, we'll grab a burrito and a cold beer. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Ron Gross sitting in for Chris Hill. Chipotle reported strong first quarter results on impressive growth in digital sales. Jason, results look good, as does the new quesadilla. Growth was <laughs> strong, but Chipotle, does Chipotle still have room to grow? I, I think they do. I think the key for Chipotle going forward is going to be making sure that they're staffing appropriately. Actually, I mean, I think the reason why what we're seeing is their ability to leverage the restaurant into many different distribution channels that just didn't exist 
before, right? You've got in-store, you've got pickup, you've got delivery. I mean, all three are really performing well. And, and you know, frankly, I think they could probably look at a company like Domino's for some tips and ideas, given what they've done with that store base through the years. Uh, when you look at the numbers, revenue up 23.4%, comps up 17.2%, margins continue to recover. A very interesting little investment in a company called Neuro, focused on autonomous delivery, aka drones for your burritos. Um, nice. Digital pickup continues to really perform. They were basically half of all digital orders for the quarter, uh, and, and ultimately, digital was half of sales for the quarter. That's about $850 million they can attribute to that digital channel. If you just look over the past couple of years, a year ago, that digital accounted for 26.3% of sales. Before that, a year before that, it was 15.7%. So, in regard to the growth, management still sees an opportunity for 6,000 stores. They have 2,800 stores today. 6,000 may be bold, but you could discount that and still have a very attractive growing market opportunity. So, as a shareholder myself, I think I'm going to hang on to my shares for now, Ron. On Tuesday, Johnson & Johnson reported quarterly results that beat expectations on strong growth in its pharmaceutical and medical device segments. Andy, these results are strong, but obviously, the controversy surrounding the J&J &J COVID vaccine and blood class remains the headline. How'd the quarter look to you, and where are we going with respect to the vaccine rollout resuming? Yeah, Ron, it was a, it was a nice quarter. They, they kind of like um, did what you'd probably analysts expected, and they guided for a little bit of Nice growth, 16 to 18% on the operating EPS for the year. So that's nice. Um, of course, they didn't have a lot. Too much to say more about the COVID situation. It's a fluid situation with them, as it is in the regulatory environment. The FDA continues to review, um, as of as we're, we're taping this, review their um, that that COVID shot. Obviously, a lot of concern just with the very rare um, condition with the blood clotting for those those shots. They are committed to 100 million doses. Jane J is so they they stand by that. Um, so that was kind of on the COVID side, on the health side, the pharmaceutical and the device, the medical devices were, were the star. The consumer health was down a little bit. They blamed that to like some stockpiling last year of you know things like I don't know maybe Listerine or, or <laughs> other things. Um, but really, the pharmaceutical um, business was up 10. percent The device, the medical devices, very sim similar to like with Intuitive Surgical, we're starting to see a lot more procedures come back into the market. That was up uh, about 11. percent So overall, a little bit of nice guidance. You have a stock that's at 165 dollars, market cap of 430. Billion, maybe growing in the mid to high single digits at a 17 price earnings multiple. I own Jane and Jay. It's not going to light the world on fire, but we'll probably deliver steady market um, either matching or at least make us money over the next few years. Europe's drug regulators have concluded that uh, overall benefits seem to outweigh any risks here. If you were a betting man, do you think um, US regulators kind of conclude the same thing? I think so. The Biden administration reports are the Biden administration is pretty upset with all the challenges J and J has had with its its vaccine, but and they baked a, they they really wanted this to succeed because a one shot vaccine. But I think it's a very rare. Only six or seven people have have suffered from the blood clotting out of more than a, I mean millions and millions of doses given. So they stand by it, and we'll see. I think that'll probably happen, but it's also a very very small part of J and J. It only contributed 100 million in sales this quarter. On Thursday, Boston Beer reported results that beat expectations on strength in, among other things, hard seltzer. Jason, 
Does Boston beer need to change its name? <laughs> well, you said it, Ron. Seltzer. Seltzer, in fact, was mentioned 38 times in the call <laughs> in the earnings call versus beers 27. So yeah, it's been a bit tongue in cheek here over the past few years. But I, I, I honestly wonder now if they don't need to consider a rebrand of sorts. There's a, a strange push and pull between the Samuel Adams and the Boston beer brands too, right? And Samuel Adams, I think, is what everybody just refers to it as. But really, as Boston beer, it is becoming more and more a seltzer company. And let's not forget too, as cannabis uh, begins to to uh, push out around the country and, and, and the laws change. I mean, this is a company that's going to pursue that option as well. So there's there's plenty of opportunity beyond beer. They continue to witness declines in Samuel Adams and Angry Orchard and Dogfish Head, but with depletions up 48 percent in the twelfth consecutive quarter of double digit volume growth. Clearly, they are doing something right, and it has a lot to do with that truly spiked seltzer brand. Andy, all we hear about is the alternative market, seltzer being the hottest part of it. Is the competition just too great? There's too many folks moving in here. People that like their Boston beers products are kind of going to fatigue over time, and they're going to have to keep reinventing themselves with the next thing and the next thing. Well, sure. Yeah, I guess so. And that's great. I mean, they've done it so far. You might see some lulls in the stock price, but they've clearly been able to innovate and tap into a, into a vein here that's, that's the, the market is reacting to. And yes, you see um, Corona and others going into the seltzer market. But I think what Boston Beer, if, for right now, the company Boston Beer is trying to do is build out this diversified uh, portfolio of offerings and um, guarantee what the company looks like in three years will be you know, a little bit different than what it looks like now. What it looks in five years is a little bit different. So, I think you this is one reason why we like management. We like the market they're playing into. We like the, the stock price has done very well. It can be very profitable at times. And they just, they, they've really executed in a very impressive manner over the last year or so. I've been very impressed with the way that they've, they've rebounded. And it clearly has shown in the stock price. But if they're not done, they're going to continue to innovate and, and continue to grow. Coming up, a conversation on financial scandals and Academy Awards with film critic and corporate governance expert Nell Minow. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. B double E double R U N Baron. B double E double R U N Baron. All we need is a 10 and a 5 or a car and a key and a sober driver. B double E double R U N Baron. A couple of frat guys from Abilene drove out all night to see Robert Earl Keane at the K-Pig Swine and Soiree Dance. They wore baseball caps and khaki pants. They wanted cigarettes, so to save a little money, they bumped one off this hippie that smelled kind of funny. And the next thing they knew, they was both really hungry and pretty thirsty, too. B-double-E-double-R-U-N, B-double-E-double-R-U-N, Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ron Gross. On Sunday night, the Academy Awards will be held. Earlier this week, Chris Hill caught up with film critic and corporate governance expert Nell Minow to get her preview for the Oscars. But Chris started the conversation with the most recent financial scandal. So now let me start with Archegos Capital 
and the fallout from this family office fund, I put family office in air quotes, mm-hmm. uh, they borrowed billions of dollars from banks like Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley and Arkegos, apparently unbeknownst to just about everyone, was using leverage, uh, sometimes to the tune of 20 to 1. And then when everything went sideways, the banks started booking these huge losses. As you were watching this multi-day drama play out, what went through your mind? Well, uh, what were they thinking went through my mind a lot. You know, the one thing that we hope that we can get from Wall Street is due diligence. And apparently there was none of any kind. And that is truly shocking to me. Uh, how, how likely would you be to go into business with somebody with the kind of record that this guy had of financial fraud? Uh, and if you were going in business with him, uh, it seems to me you would require a lot of basics. You would require many things to be an escrow. You would require lots of independent uh, justifications. And the fact that it was all put into a family business, that's only one step below a SPAC in terms of being uh, a great big loophole. Uh, so there were so many red flags uh, in this uh, in this deal. And what were they thinking? Let's stick with the family office designation for a second, because this was a term I was completely unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and early in this story, when people were referring to Archegos Capital as a hedge fund, the hedge fund community came out and said, no, 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 no. They're, they're not one of us. And so apparently back in 2010, when there were regulatory reform conversations going on in Capitol Hill, the family office funds got together and and sort of pled their case like, oh, we don't need to be subject to the same regulations because right. we're, we, we're small and we manage money very conservatively. How likely do you think it's going to be now that this has blown up for businesses like Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley? How likely do you think it is that we are going to see regulatory reform for these types of funds? Listen, I'm always happy to blame the regulators, but in this case, I don't blame them at all. The reason that we don't regulate family funds uh, with that same level of scrutiny that we do to other places is simply, in theory, there are no agency costs. Regulation is there to come in when there are agency costs, when you're managing my money, and therefore you have an incentive to possibly benefit yourself rather than me. The whole idea of a family fund is that you're putting all your eggs in one basket and you're watching that basket very closely because it's you and your family. And I have invested in a family fund uh, that a friend invited me to uh, to participate in. And yeah, it is quite um, fast and loose in some ways, but that is appropriate for something that only that is a small fund for a very limited number of people who are close to each other. Before we move on to the movie industry. And I realize this is a broad question, so I apologize for that. But on the plus side, you get to go in any direction you want. (laughs) Across the landscape of corporate governance, what are you watching right now? (laughs) I'm watching what I think is one of the most interesting issues that has ever come up in corporate governance, which is the pressure that corporate America is on to do the right thing with regard to some of the political issues that are going on right now. When did you ever see a hundred CEOs signing off on a full page ad on a political issue um, that didn't apply to say tariffs or taxes or something very directly uh, involving them? It just doesn't happen. 
And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And for people who say, I don't think corporations should get involved in politics, um, I'm sorry, but that ship has sailed. They already give money to every politician who is in office. That's their hedge. And therefore, when they, for example, say in January, uh, we're not going to give money anymore to people who didn't uh, certify the election, and then three months later renege on that, they're going to take a hit on it. You know, just like everything else they do, this is about their brand. And if they want to go down as the brand that supports vote suppression, um, or uh, or you know trans anti trans legislation, uh, they're gonna they're gonna suffer for it. In terms of the movie industry, it mm-hmm. seems at this point like things are back on schedule in terms of productions and uh, release schedules, um, but. Now studios have more options in terms of where they release films and what the timing of those releases are. How nervous should the people who run movie theaters be right now? They should be very nervous. I'm about to go back tomorrow for the first time in a year to a movie theater to see Mortal Kombat, a movie that I'm sure for whatever benefit it has, uh, you need to see it on the big screen. Uh, but, uh, I still advise people not to go to theaters yet. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they will always want to go for the big movies, I think for the big action movies, but I think you're going to see more and more coming to us at home. And, you know, as I've said to you before, people who buy tickets to a movie theater generally are between the ages of uh, 14 and 30. And so what the movie studios have discovered is that there's a whole audience for new material, not something that was in theater six months ago, but new material that is happy to watch it at home. So I think we're going to see more movies. We're going to see more middle grade, middle budget movies coming to us at home. But the big ones will still be in the theaters and the theaters are going to have to figure out a way to get people to keep coming. So in a normal year with the Academy Awards, how a film did at the box office would have some level of influence over the nominating process because it's part of the narrative that the studio marketing team can use. They can say, oh, this, you know, this was number one at the box office for three weeks, you know, that sort of thing. That wasn't the case this year. So with that in mind, I'm curious if you think the absence of that financially driven narrative has resulted in a more worthy group of nominees? Well, you know, the the award show that uh, I'm most interested in every year is the one the night before the Oscars. That's the Independent Spirit Awards. And this year, there's almost complete overlap between the two because the great big blockbusters just didn't appear. We didn't have a King's Speech. We didn't have a 12 Years of a Slave. We didn't have those big sort of Oscar-worthy type movies. Um, so there was no box office. And a lot of movies that would normally be in that slot didn't get released. So I don't think this is really a predictor of where we're going to be next year. I think we'll be back to normal in terms of prediction uh, of nominations next year. But um, but this year uh, is going to be quite interesting. It's a bunch. It's it's like going to an independent film festival to look at these nominees. Let's get to the three biggest awards of the night. And as always, we'll do who should win and who do you think will win. And we'll start with the best actor category where Chadwick Boseman could end up being only the third actor ever to win posthumously. Yeah. Uh, should win, will win a uh, lot of good, you know, they're, they're all great. Uh, all of the nominees are great, but uh, this is his last chance for an Oscar and he definitely deserves it. I had the pleasure of interviewing him twice. 
And uh, the best I can say about him was that he was every bit as humble and thoughtful the second time when he was already very famous as he was the first time when he was not. Uh, and he gave an extraordinary performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom uh, and also in The Five Bloods. So he had inc two incredible performances last year. Uh, I do want to see him win, and I think he will. The best actress category seems like it might be wide open. Where, where do you think that's going to fall out? Well, we just could see Frances McDormand making history uh, with, uh, she does give a fabulous performance in Nomadland. Uh, and that seems to be where the consensus is. How do I know that? Because there's a little bit of a backlash against Nomadland right now. And that means that everybody thinks it's the front runner. So yeah, I would be, I'd be happy seeing her get it. And I think she will get it. There were eight films nominated for best picture, as you indicated, uh, I mean, Nomadland, it seems like it's theirs to lose because it is just from a betting standpoint, it is the overwhelming favorite. Do you think there's a chance for an upset though? I doubt it. Uh, this is based on the fact that it came out ahead on the uh, producers awards and the directors awards. That's the best predictor that you can get. Um, so I think Nomadland probably will win. If we're up to me, and this is really a very personal choice, um, I was a teenager in Chicago when the events of two of the movies were happening. Uh, the Trial of the Chicago Seven uh, and Judas and the Black Messiah. And those, all of those events had a huge effect on me. It meant a lot to me to see them on the screen. So I think if it were me, I might go with uh, the Trial of the Chicago Seven with just such an outstanding script by uh, Sorkin. Obviously, we're, those are just three categories. There are a lot more categories. Are there any surprises we should be on the, the look for uh, on Sunday night when the Academy Awards happen? The biggest surprise that I think could happen on Sunday is unlikely but possible. Uh, Pixar and Disney have had a lock on animation as long as that category has existed. But Wolf Walkers has got a lot of support and is a terrific movie. And so that one just might surprise you. Coming up, we'll dip into the full mailbag and we'll share some stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Where I come from isn't all that great. My automobile is a piece of crap. My fashion sense is a little whack. And my friends are just as creepy as me. I didn't go to boarding schools. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Ron Gross here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Guys, we have time for one story and one email. On Tuesday, automation software company UiPath completed its IPO at $56 per share, raising $1.3 billion. While the IPO priced above the anticipated range, it still left the company with a lower valuation than a February financing round. But strength in the stock in the days following the IPO now have it valued at $75 per share and almost $36 billion. So, Andy, I ask you, with $600 million in revenue not yet 
profitable. Do you like this one? Well, I like the company. I think it's really neat. Specializes in robotic processing automation, software technology that helps companies and organizations build and deploy and manage software robots that basically emulate human activities that help us get more and more efficient um, with uh, and, and allows those humans to interact with those digital systems and software and to take out a lot of those rote um, actions that that uh, humans have to do. So I like the I like the spirit of the company. The founder Daniel Dines uh, owns 110 million shares, so he clearly is invested into the into the business. Um, we'll have to see. I think if this came out in the IPO market six months ago, it probably would have been larger than 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 Snowflake. So so I expect the growth rate the growth rates are 80 percent plus, very high gross margins. So a lot to like with UiPath. Have to look more into it. Recently IPO, as you said, Ron, but a lot to like with the business and the market they're serving. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Question from Isaac. He says, I'm a current stock advisor subscriber, and I have noticed that there aren't many international stocks that are recommended. Do you have any tips to help me start diversifying internationally? Jason, what do you got for Isaac? Well, Isaac, thanks first and foremost for being a member of Stock Advisor. Appreciate you being a part of our foolish family. Um, I think it's a good question. We all want that international exposure. There are a number of different ways to get it, and I think uh, today, more so than ever, uh, you may have more international exposure than you might might even realize. And what I mean by that is a lot of companies that are domiciled here uh, actually make a lot of their money still internationally. Look at a company like PayPal, for example. Only half of their revenue came from the U.S. over the last year. Nike, another example, actually generates more revenue outside of the United States than inside. So, uh, pay attention to some of those businesses that you have in your portfolio. Understand exactly where they're making their money, and that can give you a little bit more of an idea there to your international exposure. And also, if you're looking for some pure international exposure, an ETF is a great way to go about it. The Vanguard Total International Stock ETF, ticker is VXUS, it could be a great Great way to, to, to get some exposure there. Some of the top 10 holdings there include Taiwan Semiconductor, Alibaba, Samsung, and Novartis. So, a few different ways to look at it. Yeah, I love the ETF idea. I own an ETF, uh, ticker symbol EFA, tracks the MSCI EAFE index, which tracks large and mid-cap stocks across 21 developed markets countries, excludes the US and Canada. So, that's also a nice way um, if you're looking for another ETF. Andy? VXUS, also part of the April Fool's portfolio at fool.com slash free. <laughs> I didn't even know that. There you go, Jason. Thanks a lot. Okay, guys, time for stocks on our radar. I'll bring in our man, Dan Boyd, for a quick question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What do you got? Yeah, a bit digging more into Roblox, ticker RBLX. Roblox develops and operates an online entertainment platform. I'm sure a lot of folks out there are familiar, at least familiar with the fact that their kids use it religiously, but they've got things like Roblox Client, Roblox Client, which is an application that allows users to explore those 3D digital worlds. There's Roblox Studio, which helps Helps you develop. There's uh, Roblox Cloud. I mean, there are just all sorts of ways this business goes. But it all is all centers around this concept of the metaverse, and that concept really is only getting started. As capabilities continue to roll out, there are going to be a number of different ways for Roblox to monetize the metaverse. Uh, they have an average of 37.1 million people coming to that Roblox platform every day. Looks like there's there could be some competitive advantages there, and network effects, maybe even switching costs when you consider the Robux. Currency, yes, they have their own currency, Ron. Uh, but all in all, founder-led business looks very compelling. Dan, 
Yeah, so Jason, you're using a whole lot of words that I don't understand. And I'm not, you know, a particularly intelligent person, but metaverse? Yeah. What are you even talking about? Yeah, well, uh, you know, it, 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 it's like another world, Dan. It's 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 like a virtual world. It's 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 you ever read that book Ready Player 1 or did you see the movie? I have not read that book, and I have not seen that movie. Well, if you dig into that story a little bit, I think it'll make it a little bit more clear. Okay, I, thank you. I, I bought my first Robux the other week. Nice. Are there superheroes nice. in this midiverse or multiverse? Uh, it can be anything. It can be anything oh, yeah. you want, Ron. That's the beauty of it. It's it's the only boundaries are are what you can conjure up with your imagination. Awesome. Andy, you're up. What are you looking at? I'm going the total opposite direction. <laughs> PJT Partners is, uh, we have a recommendation in a couple services, maybe uh, here at the, the Discovery Landscape. Um, it's a, uh, a small cap company, it's about a $3 billion um, small cap advisory and investment bank, provides strategic advisory and capital raising, mergers and acquisition, restructuring, private equity, and shareholder advisory services from just 750 employees. It was founded by Paul Taubman, who was formerly of Morgan Stanley and left that to start his own bank. It has one of the highest market shares of volumes in restructuring, which actually has been a very good part of their business, sadly, I guess, over the last year. But the, you need a lot of companies to have to restructure their balance sheet, and PJG Partners has specialized in that. They were involved in Schwab's acquisition of, of, of TD Ameritrade, the AbbVie and Allergan acquisition, the T-Mobile and Sprint. They were an advisory on that merger. So really coming off uh, in a year of restructurings and merger that was very positive, the capital raising not as strong. So um, I'm really looking when they report earnings, I think next week, what are they seeing in the markets? How are they evolving to address a different market than what they had in 2020? The stock, it's been in public for five years, Dan. Stock's done very well. They've been able to grow revenues at more than 20%. They're involved in the SPAC market from a consulting perspective. And I want to hear what they are saying and what they are seeing from the SPAC market, which has kind of softened here over the past few months. Dan? Yeah, Andy. So uh, it's spring of 2021 now. Spring of 2020. I mean, the world has changed. The stock market has changed. The way people have invest, it's changing. These investment banks. You know, are they are they sticking with the times? Are they driving change in investing, or are they lagging behind? Well, I think they're probably matching. The the they are consulting PJT, which by the way are Paul Talman's initials, which always makes me a little nervous when you see a, comp- <laughs> a founder put his initials on 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 the company. Although with Walker and Dunlop, it's worked very well. Another company of ours, but Dan, I think they are just sticking along. They are very people focused, very relationship focused. It's very um, uh, very social, and they have to make those connections. And they do that very well. So I'm not sure if they are leading on the technology front, but they are certainly staying up with the times because that's where their clients are. I don't know, Dan. You got a favorite here? I actually do, Ron. I'm going to go with unlimited imagination <laughs> and go with Jason's pick of Roblox. <laughs> nice. Sounds good. Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, thanks for being here. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Ron Gross. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 